Welcome to the Tom Dupree Show. Joining us this week, Adarsh Meshru and our host, Tom Dupree, who's playing some very current music in this segment. Well, there's a reason for it. So this is a group, uh, I'm not sure they can decide what their name is. It started out as Lady Antebellum, and then they changed it to Lady A, because the word antebellum, which basically means pre-war, was deemed to have racist overtones. And so they changed the name to Lady A, but people still call them Lady Antebellum. Now, here's what I call this kind of music, which comes out of Nashville, Tennessee. It actually plays on country stations. This is music by committee. When I'm listening to this song, I get the feeling that this music was created by a focus group and that the kids that are in the band probably came out of a praise band from a mega church. It's it's an easy switch. This type of country music is written for the sort of wokey edge 20 to 30 somethings that country music would like to attract but they know the they're never gonna be listeners to george Strait. so i don't know it's it's catchy it's interesting to listen to it has no soul at all it's it's pop country music and it was created by committee that's just my feeling you know there's probably some really talented writer that wrote this and you have just said it was done by committee i think it's it it sounds like it to me i mean it doesn't have any ragged edges to it at all it's it's very produced it sounds like it could just as easily be at one of these uh, me- big mega churches where you come in for 50 minutes and they basically entertain you and uh, you feel like you've been to church. Anyway, uh, that's that's just my, uh, I, I mean, listen to the words of the song. It was pretty interesting. So, all right, we're not here to talk about music only. We're here to talk about the, but that does translate for me to the investment business. You have slick 
presentations out there where they want to get you to put your money into something. And then sometimes you have investments that have a little hair on them. And, you know, those, those can be, those, (laughs) those can be interesting. Also, if you, you know, if you're a trash picker, like I am, how to stand up in a bear market, younger investors can treat this year's steep decline in stocks as a buying opportunity. Older investors may not be able to wait around for a recovery. So it says younger investors can treat this year's decline as a buying opportunity, but will they? So I think, uh, you know, if a younger investor has, and I think a lot of them do these days, if they have a 401k or some kind of a plan that they're contributing to, then they are going to be buying the dip because I think... Yeah, the money will keep going in there uh, each month. Yes, yes. Right. But the most important, I think, message is that, you know, people uh, get scared of bear markets, um, especially, you know, when someone is young. But, you know, when you think about any other product or service that's out there, you know, if their prices drop, then you're inclined to go out and buy buy more because that, that product or service is trading at a discount or right. selling at a discount. Uh, so something similar applies to markets as well. Um, and I think Jason Zweig, who wrote this article, he's trying to say that, you know, of course, if you're young, then you should be uh, glad that the market is dropping because you are going to buy things that you uh, like, whether it be, uh, you know, your mutual funds or individual stocks at lower prices. Uh, and that means that, you know, your potential future returns on what you buy could be higher than what it would be had you been paying higher prices. Now, the uh, corollary to that is that if you are older, then you cannot treat uh, a bear market the same way as you know a younger person does. Because for a young person who's got an income coming in, all they have to do is you know keep contributing monthly. But an older person who's relying on their uh, portfolio for an income, uh, you know, cannot just start aggressively buying uh, like a younger person would, uh, even if they had, uh, you know, excess funds. But do- it depends, doesn't it? I mean, let's say they did have excess funds and they had money that was set aside to buy things on a dip. Uh, you know, they could certainly establish a position in something, I mean, I've I've talked to people in their eighties, and they still, you know, want to invest for growth, and and right. and do try to invest for growth. That that's true, and you know, it all depends on on what your I, I suppose goals are with your portfolio. So a lot of uh, investment portfolios, even if they're owned by older people, they uh, they are investing into those portfolios with the in- intention of just passing them on to the next generation. They're not necessarily making withdrawals from their portfolio. Um, now, and yes, that's not to say that, you know, market drop is not a buying opportunity even for an older investor. Um, I think uh, it's just important to be aware that not every single dip you know, is going to recover like it always has. So for example, if you go back to the year 2000, you know, if you were an older investor and if you had a majority of your portfolio in, say, tech stocks <laughs> and the market started dipping. Somebody was, you know, some people are that aggressive, right. even as older investors. Well, how could you not be? Because the whole 
decade of the 90s had been rallying. Exactly, at the yes. same time, interest rates have been coming down also. Right, right. So in that situation, what you have to do is, you know, pause and ask if something has really changed. And in that at that moment, there was an inflection point. You know, it took 16 years for stocks to go back, tech stocks to go back to where they were. Uh, and there were certain stocks that have still not made it back 22 years later. Uh, for example, Intel is still below where it was in the year 2000. Cisco is still below where it was. Well, what's happened to the top line uh, revenue of Intel? Is it, is it, it's kept going up. They've, Of course, they've had some uh, periods where uh, it's dropped, but Intel's revenue in the year 2000 was much lower than where it is in 20. What about margins? Uh, their margins uh, are perhaps, you know, not as great just because they were slow to move to, you know, other products. Intel was very slow to go into cell phones. You know, they stuck to their legacy PC business and right. then it took a while and then... They well, I remember you, you, the microprocessors, the, the longest one ago I remember was a 286. Then they had a 386, 486, 586. Then I think they came to the Pentium and they've not done the... The 86 anymore. It's been right. Pentium this, Pentium that. I don't even know what it's called now. Uh, the, the, the microprocessor inside of a PC. But I remember, you know, this would have been 25 years ago. They'd say, oh, I just got a 386. You know, I remember getting a 386. I paid like $2,000 yeah. for just one computer, you know. Right. It, it was for this Bill Good system. But the point is... <sighs> What seems to have happened, and I'm kind of getting off on Intel, is that as the prices, as the uh, speed and um, throughput of a microprocessor has gone up, the price has actually come down. And in essence, you've seen them sort of squeeze the fat and the margins out of it. Then when you see people not buying as many PCs, and PC sales have gone way down. I mean, people just don't buy as many PCs. They buy tablets and things like that. You get squeezed. And so people look at Intel and think, well, that may not be a business I want to be in. Right. Right. You know. No, and, and that's true. And, uh, you know, and in the case of Intel, they were slow. And I think that this happens to a lot of older companies uh, because technology is constantly changing. And, uh, you know, if uh, companies do not adapt to the new technologies, uh, then, then yes, competitors come in. So NVIDIA, for example, they got into, you know, gaming and graphics accelerators and all that, adapters. And uh, they have done extremely well. They also make stuff that's used to uh, processors that are used to mine cryptocurrencies. Uh, right. And that's a different... Those are more like gaming uh, consoles, aren't they? They have some of the same characteristics. Yes. So ultimately, it's still a microprocessor, um, uh, but it, it can work the algorithm. Yes. Quickly. Yes. So, so the point is that you know the uh, the landscape uh, evolved, uh, the needs of uh, you know the consumers evolved, and Intel was slow to uh, adapt to that. Uh, so, and that can happen. We've seen that with, you know, GM, GM was the biggest company in the 1950s. And then it basically went bankrupt because they were slow to change. 
right. and the Japanese cars started coming in and the Japanese cars were cheaper and then eventually they became better. They were not very good initially. Um, so um, I think the point with, you know, something like Intel or just tech stocks in the year 2000 is that ultimately valuations matter. So if you have something in your portfolio that's been going up, that's great. Uh, but at some point, the market recognizes that, okay, this is either too expensive or, you know, this in the case of uh, the late 90s, there was a bubble. Uh, and if you are an older investor, then if, if your reaction is that, okay, I'm just going to stay with this because this has worked in the past or, you know, I'm, I'm going to keep adding to it every time it drops 5%, then that could be, uh, that may not be the best strategy unless, of course, you know, you are buying. So now eventually things did come back. So had you been buying those, a basket of tech stocks, had you buy, been buying Intel, then perhaps you would have not done as well. But had you been buying something like Amazon in the year 2000, you would have done extremely well. Amazon dropped uh, <coughs> dropped 90% from its peak. Uh, and then, of course, it went on to gain thousands of percent. I want to talk about uh, a company that we have just added in the portfolio don't usually do this, but I, I think it's important because one of the things that uh, you know I'd like to say to people right now, and I don't do it that often, is if you're on the fence, if you want to change, if you're looking, we have a very pretty convincing take on the market, and we think there are some things that are remarkable values, one of which is a company called Airbnb. Now, I... We're, we're investing in this company, getting started. I want to say something about this company. Um, they came through a process called Y Combinator. Y Combinator is like a huge sieve. People bring it ideas for businesses, and they sift through, and they may, may put in 300 business ideas, and come out with three um, that are investable by the venture capital groups. Airbnb was one of them. If you don't understand what Airbnb is, think of it as simply a process, an algorithm that takes properties that are not being used to their full economic potential and helps them realize that it helps people owners of 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 real estate use that real estate for lodging purposes and give people places to stay as an alternative to hotels now why do i know about airbnb well starting uh seven eight years ago adarsh and i uh went to Europe twice and both trips it was like two years in a row we did not stay in a hotel the whole time and uh, it was really interesting we we stayed on a boat in Stockholm and there was this old man that was the head of the boat dock and he said, I don't like your Donald Trump. <laughs> this is in a place called Jurgarden. 
D-J-U-R, Garden, G-A-R-D-E-N. And it was close to many incredible restaurants, museums, and a lot of a lot of interesting stuff. We would go to sleep at night with the sound of water lapping against the hull. It was and it was significantly cheaper than the hotels. Even back then the hotels in Stockholm were three, four hundred bucks a night. This was like right at a hundred a night. If you have an economic uh, an algorithm that can actually create value in a way like that, you have a remarkable thing. There's nobody else in the business of lodging that does it like they do it. Um, there was one problem. It put us in a place in Oslo up on the side of a mountain where there were badgers <laughs> up on the hill. One night we came in, we'd had a couple of drinks, and Adar says, they're out there. I can hear them. Do you hear that? And the proper pro- I was staying in upstairs in the room. It was like eye level with this hill where the badgers were. And I was convinced that one of them was going to jump over and come through my window. Anyway, but you get experiences like that that you remember because you're staying with real people in real houses not some some hotel airbnb puts you together with people their their selling point is creating these kind of experiences as i understand their market cap that is the value of all their shares outstanding is higher than i don't know the top three or four publicly traded hotel companies that may or may not be true, but let's just put it this way. They don't own any property. All they own is an algorithm and a presence that can create these transactions and allow these people to stay at these various places. And I think it's a remarkable platform. Yeah, so, I mean, I've I've personally used airbnb apart from the trips that we've made together i've used it often um and uh, I, I really like it and i think airbnb it's interesting when you go on their website they're trying to figure out other ways to create uh revenue and be of service uh so like you can sign up for a class or something yes, on there yes you can i think it's called airbnb experiences so say if you're going to a new city not only do you rent a place, but you can do you can buy museum tickets. Uh, you can buy you know uh, you can do walking tours with tour guides. Bike trip. Yeah. So an Airbnb obviously you know gets uh, some sort of a, a you know fee for yeah. for providing that. So so it is, and and it's a global brand. It's recognized by everyone all around the world. Uh, there are competitors, of course, but I don't think anyone uh, is to the same standard as Airbnb or anyone is as trusted as Airbnb. And nobody has the name. And here's the other thing about it. And this is, to me, almost like blockchain. Blockchain is that verification process that Bitcoin uses. That will be the one thing, in my opinion, that comes out of the whole crypto thing that will last. It'll be blockchain. The the crypto will go up and down, but the the verification thing will, will stay. It's the review process. Uber uses it. Airbnb uses it. Both the user and the vendor get reviewed. 
So Elizabeth says, uh, what about somebody coming into a house and stealing something valuable? That will get put on the review for that person, and you will say they are a thief. This stuff went missing. That review will follow them, and they will never be able to rent another place on Airbnb again. It's like in our business getting a bad mark on your U4. The The verification process, i.e., the, um, the, the review process, keeps people honest. Right. It may not be perfect, but it has it has that it has that part to it. I'm trying to swipe back and forth. I'm going to say this real quickly. Nothing on this show is a recommendation to buy or sell securities while stocks oh, yeah. and the stock market will be discussed on this program. Check with your financial advisor or a professional before investing. And now. The music comes back on. Okay, I thought good. maybe I could swipe you on my phone and it wouldn't. Co- no, it won't do it. That's what I just did. Well, you don't have an Android like I do. Oh, okay. Whatever. You've been listening to the Tom Dupree Show with the Darsh Meshru. We'll be back in just a few minutes with more talk about the investment business. Stay tuned. from Montgomery I had my guitar on my back when a stranger stopped beside me in an antique Cadillac he was dressed like 1950 half drunk and hollow eyed he said it's a long walk to Nashville would you like to ride when I sat down in the front seat Turned on the radio And them sad old songs Coming out of them speakers Was solid country gold Then I noticed the stranger Was ghost white pale When he asked me for a light And I knew there was something strange About this ride He said Drifter can you make folks cry When you play and sing Have you paid your dues Can you moan the blues Can you bend down Cause if you're big star bound, let me warn you, it's a long, hard ride. Welcome back to the Tom Dupree Show. Joining us this week in the second segment of the second hour, Darsh Meshru and our host, Tom Dupree. Turn it up. So I got a question for you. This is obviously a little grittier than Lady Annabelle. Yeah, that was the whole point. Right. I got the point. This is not processed, overproduced, or meant to be inoffensive. If uh, David Allen Coe were told that uh, one of his songs was somehow uh, offensive to someone, he would just double down on it instead of changing the name of it. So, but let me ask you a question. To, to borrow a phrase from you, let me ask you a question. 
What about Luke Combs? He's a modern sort of pop artist, so to speak, but he has a little grit to him. Is he... um, I'm going to be real honest with you. Oh, please do another one of your favorite phrases. Be honest, Tom. I don't know much about Luke Combs. Oh, okay. Well, then I will play some Luke Combs for you. Do it at the end. And we'll we'll report back next week with some Luke Combs to boot the show. Good, good. That's fine. It's It's your deal. All right. Let's talk a little bit about gasoline. Uh, And, you know, gasoline is, I think some people, and there's a misconception out there. It's not because people are dumb. They're just uninformed. They kind of think that crude oil gets pulled out of the ground and suddenly it's gasoline. And there's a lot of steps between taking crude oil and making it into gasoline. Uh, there's the, of course, there's the extraction process of actually finding crude oil. And that thing has come a long way in the last 30, 40, 50 years with the advent of fracking, the ability to fracture the uh, rock bed down in the um, drill hole and create fissures, little cracks in it that allow uh, even microscopic little cracks that allow more oil to escape and get into the uh, get into the uh, well and come out of the ground. So there's that. Uh, there's also then the midstream element. Those are pipelines. Uh, we have more more pipelines today than we did at one time. Oil simply the simply finding oil uh, is not uh, enough. You have to have a way of transporting it. The most uh, economical way is to use pipelines. Uh, the second probably would be uh, railroad, and and then trucking. So that, that's the midstream. That's the transporting of uh, crude or natural gas from the wellhead to uh, the end user. And then there's the third step, which is called the downstream uh, part of it. It's the refining process. Now, uh, refineries, specifically in the case of crude oil, are the place where crude oil, the just that black stuff that comes in there, is turned into different what you would call distillates. These are uh, products that are created uh, through the cracking process with the application of heat. They essentially boil it, and the different uh, products come out in what's called a cracking tower it kind of goes up it's like a distillery in a uh in a uh whiskey it's like a whiskey distillery it goes up and then then comes off at certain levels you've got diesel you've got uh gasoline i mean even things like uh uh, kerosene kerosene which is jet fuel whenever you hear, hear somebody refer to jet a that's kerosene so jets all kinds of jets fly 
using kerosene. Heating oil, big thing up in New England. It's probably similar to kerosene. But these are various uh, petroleum products and byproducts. So certain things are also created. Paraffin. Paraffin, asphalt. Right. It goes on roads, which is a tar, really. It's basically tar. These are all things that come out of the of the cracking tower or are left behind of stuff that doesn't get cracked. And the the bottleneck with the uh, gasoline prices has been uh, the the refining process because. Refiners have been told for years, you know, don't invest back into refining. We're going to electric cars. And all of a sudden, they start getting their wish, and now you've got diesel at $6 a barrel or a, 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 a gallon. And if you don't have enough refining capacity, it doesn't matter how much crude oil you've got, you cannot run a car on crude oil. Right. And uh, there, there is a shortage uh, in, uh, you know, refining capacity. And as you said, that's part of the reason why gas prices are as high as they are. Uh, now, what's the side effect of high gas prices is that, you know, it, it kind of, goes gas is used basically everywhere not just gas but diesel uh kerosene all these uh, byproducts of crude oil they're used uh basically in multiple industries uh throughout uh you know the economy throughout various supply chains and um one of the consequences of higher gas prices is that inflation has gone up which everyone has experienced now um and food prices have also gone up. Um, and there comes a point, you know, where prices just become too high, where economic activity starts slowing down. So people start driving less. Uh, you know, industries that rely on, uh, say, diesel or kerosene or whatever, you know, manufacturing industries, they start curtailing production. Uh, and that, has you know consequences on the rest of the economy so we are maybe you know starting to see that uh and that is also worrisome because historically every time oil prices have risen beyond a certain level where it just becomes too expensive you know we start seeing demand destruction and demand destruction tends to uh, lead to a slowdown in economic growth well right uh yes because if you think about it, uh, transportation is involved in just about every aspect of economic activity. You can't have economic activity without some form of transportation. Right. Some product or service has to go from point A to point B, and it's very difficult to do everything on the Internet. You know, So... The thing that's important to know is that we live in a carbon-based environment. You can't 
pretend like we don't. We breathe oxygen and blow out carbon monoxide. Our food groups that we eat are organic. The organic chemistry, the, the term organic chemistry refers to any kind of chemical that's got a carbon molecule. It can't be organic without carbon. Carbon is part of everything we do. This idea that we want to get rid of carbon emissions, that's antithetical to how life works and the economy works. And so the entire notion, in my opinion, is, is, is uh, misaligned with how reality works. And therefore, uh, you know, we've got to go back and figure out how to get more carbon into our lives, not less. The, uh, I tell you what's interesting, technology. Technology has driven uh, the energy business in the last 40 to 50 years. You know, in the 1970s, this term peak oil came about, and basically what it said was, oh, we're getting to the point where We've already used most of the oil that has been found and that it's going to start to taper off. Basically, the assumption there was sort of a zero-sum game that there would be no technology that would be able to find more oil. Today, 50 years later, all that oil usage, we have far more oil reserves that we know about and many that we don't know about than we knew about in the 70s. That's true, yes. Um, and, you know, I, I think um, there was a confluence of factors that, that changed that. So as you said, I think the name of the person who coined it, his name was King, Robert King, maybe. He came up with the idea of peak oil. Um, and uh, there was a similar concept before that, which was peak coal, uh, and then it turned out that there was also more coal, you know, out there. Um, but what often happens, uh, esp especially in uh, commodity-type industries, of course, we know that these resources are finite. And there's no denying that. But how finite they are, you know, that uh, no one knows, really. Uh, so with crude oil... You know, there was a confluence of factors, especially it's, you know, it's been happening over the decades, but in uh, the late, uh, pa later part of the previous decade, the decade of the 2000s, right around the time of the financial crisis, right before the financial crisis, there was a confluence of factors. So there was capital, there was technology, and then there were resources that all came together and all of a sudden, the U.S. you know went from being a deficit country to being a surplus uh, producer of uh, of oil. Uh, now, not all all the oil that the U.S. Uh, produces it refines and uses. Some of it is uh, exported, um, but that whole notion of uh, you know uh, peak oil was disproved, and we went from having no oil to you know, having negative prices for oil because there was just so much oil. 
Uh, and of course, right. That was, and that was all technology driven, right? The right. fact that we had all the, the, well, we could find it and right. understand where it was and places like that. Yes, it, it was all technology driven, and and there was capital available. So imagine if you had the technology but no capital. Uh, right. So and the infrastructure was in place uh, in places like you know. Um, Permian Basin, where not only was the oil found, but there was infrastructure to transport that oil, get it to the refineries. Uh, and the thing with uh, oil and gas is that, yes, it obviously has, you know, an economic uh, use and, you know, it impacts the, the economy of the country, but there's also a geopolitical factor to it and a national security factor to it where, you know, we saw that this war between Russia and Ukraine put Europe in a very uh, precarious state where all of a sudden they were relying on uh, their energy supplies from, you know, a country which became, uh, you know, an enemy country, basically. So it is important to be energy self-sufficient. And oil and gas obviously play a role and natural gas also plays a pretty important role. Okay, so the point is, just because this is where investing and politics sort of intersect, Um, politically, fossil fuels are considered unattractive the push has been for electrical cars the reality is we do live in a carbon-based environment it would be very difficult to have even 30 percent more cars on the road be electrical cars because of the constraints of the electric grid the amount of building out that needs to take place not to mention the fossil fuels that need to be burned in order to generate that electricity, which actually taking electricity from a fossil fuel source and then converting it into a battery is highly inefficient. It's actually a lot more energy efficient to put gasoline in a car and drive it on motive power from a combustion engine than to generate electricity, send it through the wires where you lose energy the whole way, put it into a battery where you lose energy there. Anytime heat is being generated, you're losing electricity and then pull it out of a battery in order to drive with it. It's significantly less energy efficient to go with batteries than to go with just direct gasoline and an internal combustion engine. Right. Um, And, you know, I mean, I'm not, (laughs) I wouldn't say that there's absolutely no place for alternatives. There is, and, you know. No, I'm uh, not saying that either. I'm just saying to convert our economy wholesale. Right. Over to alternatives to, you know, this idea of, oh, by 2030. Right. 
we want you know forty percent of the cars on the road to be electric. That's right. That's nonsense. Right. Yeah. So the time frame needs to be realistic. Uh, you know, and uh, you know, if it's not a realistic time frame, then you have these uh, you know side uh, unintended consequences like what we are seeing now, where you know gas is at six dollars. Uh, and in Europe, it's even worse, where the prices of price of natural gas has gone up exponentially. Right. Where uh, you know it's it's expensive to run industries, and luckily, right now we are in the summer months. Imagine if this happens during the winter. Right. Uh, that makes it even worse. So, um, yeah, whoever you know, the policymakers, the planners, they definitely need to have a more realistic uh, time frame and a more practical viewpoint on this versus being completely uh, ideologically driven. Right. Um, one other thing to consider uh, is the market, the stock market. Today, as we speak, uh, the stock market's up, uh, the S&P's up over 3%, is that correct? Yes. And this is Friday afternoon. Big move. Interest rates have somewhat moderated uh, from, say, two weeks ago when the 10-year Treasury got almost up to a yield of 3.5%. It's closer to 3.11 or somewhere. 3.15, I think. Yeah, 3.15. So you're actually seeing sort of the reverse of what the Fed was trying to do, which is, you know, they – they attempt to sort of tamp down the economy by raising short-term interest rates. seems like the last few times they've tried to do that, the long end of the bond market actually rallied, meaning right. Fed raised interest rates on the short end, interest rates on the long end fell. Right. What's going on, Adars? Well, and, and that, that typically happens uh, when um, basically – the short end is telling you what's going on right now. So the the short-term interest rate uh, reflects the price level in the economy and the level of inflation. The longer-term in- interest rate reflects uh, future expectations of the market. So what usually happens is uh, that short-term interest rates are raised when the economy starts overheating or, or, and when prices start rising. Uh, so there comes a point where short-term interest rates are raised or go up to a level. And I'm not saying that the Fed is completely behind this. Basically, market forces, they raise, you know, the the Fed generally follows the market. It does not lead the market. Right. Um, so there comes a point where interest rates go up high enough and the economy slows down and long rates uh, are a reflection of uh, a slowing future economy. Um, and so money starts going into long-term bonds out of the stock market usually. Which would include mortgage rates on which, the long end. Which includes mortgage rates, yes. All right, guys. Great explanation. we got to jump. If you want us to take a look at your portfolio, we'd be happy to do that. 859-233-0400. Call us and schedule a free portfolio review. Thanks for listening. We will talk to you next week. You've been listening to the Tom Dupree Show with the Darsh Meshru.